Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Good to see everyone. Feel free to be seated. Uh, if you weren't here last weekend and you uh, missed the sermon, I pray you get a chance to listen to it because we are starting a series in Romans where we are doing one chapter per week, which means if you miss one week, you miss a lot. So I hope you get to go back and, and listen to that and hear what we talked about. Uh, as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I was thinking about something that happened to me actually last Sunday as I was coming to church. I was driving out of our driveway, and, and here in front of me is this dad and his two kids, and uh, they, they look like they're ready for summer. He's got his tank top on and board shorts. Uh, the two little kids are doing the great thing where they've got like the, the bright fluorescent orange swim shirt and the fluorescent green swim pants, right? And then their little water shoes and their, their helmets on for their bike, and they're cruising on. Now, I don't, I don't know if they're actually heading to a swimming pool or just ready for anything the Boise River might throw at them that day, but they look like they're having a good time. And uh, I had this interesting thought as I was driving down the driveway. I was like, oh, how different would that be? How different would that be to get up on a Sunday and be like, oh, there's nothing to do. Let's just go get on a bike and let's go to the river. And then I I felt something else start to well up in me. It was this sense of superiority. (laughs) I'm like, oh, but I'm I'm going to church. We're going to go through Romans together. And I'm thankful to God that as I I drove down the street and made the next corner, like immediately, like the Holy Spirit was like, boom, like, you don't know anything about this guy. Uh, First, I I didn't know first, for starters, I mean, this guy could be a a devoted Christian. He could just be his one weekend off visiting family in another city. He could be a pastor and elder somewhere else, finally just trying to get a little break with his kids to go do something. But even worse, number two, why did my heart go to superiority? Why did it not start with thinking through like, man, I would love for you to come and experience what I think I'm going to hear by going to the, to the Lord's word with other believers, by being able to be encouraged with one another. And <clears throat> I found as, as God was just preparing my heart for this week, that, that 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 attitude kept coming up in different places. And I'm sure this has never happened to you. But I, again, I was driving down the street near my house, and all of a sudden this car slows way down to a, just a barely a crawl. It's barely moving. And then it just stops. Right, And I do what all you do, which is I waited what felt like two minutes. I'm sure it's two seconds. And then I did the nice little beep, beep, you know, polite honk. They kind of pulled over and they went to the side. And then as I'm driving by, I look in my rearview mirror just to confirm for myself, yes, it was someone much older than me. Right? So I'm like, oh, good. See, like, like I, I'm not going to be that way. That's never going to be me. I'm going to be such a good driver. Never one's ever going to have any problems with me that way. And again, I, I start to realize, like, I don't, man, she could have lost a contact. She could have been literally lost, not knowing where she was at. I really think she was just kind of excited about the house that was for sale that was right there that she stopped and was looking at and then kind of finally pulled over. But I found in myself this heart coming up again and again and realizing this attitude where I go quickly to judgment. You know, I thought I, I want to think in some way that I'm, I'm better than other people or that I'm not going to be like them and have their issues. You know, I, don't, I don't know if that's true, but I think everyone struggles with that in certain ways. You know, we, we want to think that we have a qualification, a status, something about us that makes us so different than everyone else, uh, that, that we are going to be seen differently, treated differently, act differently. And I think some of us, we even do that with things like our hurt, where we hold on to our hurt because it means it's something that others, they can't enter in because they can't possibly understand what I've been through. 
Whatever way it looks like, we find ways to to see ourselves as distinct, superior. Uh, We quickly turn to that to try to justify ourselves above and over and against other people. Now, that's one of the main things that Paul's going to talk about this morning, where he's continuing on his logic that he's been working on from chapter 1. And when we started in chapter 1, we saw that Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome, and he is so excited and eager to share about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he says in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's amazing. The gospel is the power of God to save. Knowing what he's done for us in Jesus Christ and coming to that reality in faith is a saving experience. And Paul is so excited to share that with people, something we should desire to share with others as well, that they might have that same joy. And part of that process is God bringing us back into right relationship with himself. And he does that by making us righteous. Uh, We talked about this idea that the righteousness of God is the act by which God brings people into right relationship with himself. It's this idea in the righteousness of God that God who is righteous, who has the attribute of righteousness, does a very righteous thing and action to give us a status that we might be seen righteous, even though we do nothing to deserve that. You know, that our position to God has changed through his work alone, and that that righteousness of God is revealed through faith, as you and I, as we are able to, through God changing us, to believe the amazing mercy that he's given us through Jesus Christ. And yet Paul, we saw even in Romans 1, starts where he needs to start, which is the sadness, the darkness that is our sin. That's what makes the good news such good news. And he tries to capture in that idea what it is like to be outside of relationship with God. And he uses the word wrath. Wrath, the disposition of the relationship that God has to people who are not right with him and those who are walking away from him. And we even saw in Romans 1 that as we pursue sin, God allows us to sin, that he he gives us over to it as it were. And that includes ways that we misuse our bodies, ways that we misuse our knowledge and our hearts. And Paul is starting here in Romans 1 by telling us that that we are convicted even by general revelation. We talked about this last week, that this idea that nature and our own consciences are being made in the very image of God testifies to us certain things that we should and should not do. And yet in chapter 1, Paul told us that we still just don't do it. No one does it. And he says this at the very end, Romans one thirty two. He says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get approval to those who practice them. <laughs> we go even further. We, we look at those around us who are not doing what we know that we should do, and we say, good job, because in one sense it justifies us. We may feel better that we're not quite measuring up if we see everyone else just doing the same thing. And that's where Paul is starting here in chapter 2. He's picking up that discussion, and he seems to be anticipating, again, a response of different people, a response that we saw a little bit in chapter 1, but it seems to continue on throughout Romans, where someone might look and say, you know what, I know that those people, those people might not listen to general revelation, but I'm different. I've got something different about me. You know, they are sinners, 
And you can understand that a little bit. Paul's been using the language of they. He's been using that language of they talking largely about Gentiles. And so they might be picking up on it. And so right here in Romans 2, he switches language up. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges or even switches to we language in Romans 2.2. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's clearly turning in this discussion from sort of outsider language, and maybe Gentiles in general, to insider language. You, we, us. Paul's using a very common technique called a diatribe where he's debating an imaginary person, an imaginary opponent. And as we will continue to see throughout chapter two, that he's likely talking now you to Jewish Christians or just even Christians maybe in general. Uh, We start to see the image that it's likely Jews because he talks about the law and how the law works in our lives. But then we get to Romans 2.17 and he says this, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew... Well, it becomes pretty clear now he's probably talking to Jewish people. Yet for some reason, starting in the very beginning, he doesn't make it clear. I think there's probably two reasons he does that. One, he's probably like anyone else that he wants to slowly bring them along, maybe kind of hook them and they start to say, oh yeah, that's a problem. Oh yeah, wait, me? You're talking about me? But I think also number two, I think Paul's looking at this, this new church in Rome, these Christians, and he's starting to see the same heart that he's seeing in the Jewish people seem to be expressed in the church as well. It's a much broader problem than just for Jewish people, though he's particularly going to talk to them. And Paul's argument centers on verse three here. This is what he says. He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? The question here is how can you and I, how can anyone who can see sin in our lives ever look at other sinners and feel like we have the moral high ground, that we are superior to them in some way, shape, or form? You know, I was talking to someone last week after the sermon, and we were talking about these lists, like we kind of saw in Romans 1, and we'll see some more today, about all the different ways that people fail and what those kind of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we saw it in Romans 1, we can see it in places like 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul says this there, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we see lists like this all over the Old and New Testament. And again and again, our tendency tends to be, you're right, those people won't go to heaven. But I was sharing with someone last week that, that something a professor said to me once was, was, you need to notice two things about these lists. One, they're never identical, which means you're supposed to realize they're just pulling out emblematic sins. It's not an exhaustive list of all the things. But number two, you should always be finding yourself in that list, right? Whenever we look at it, especially like in this one, we should say, we're idolaters. Which of us can look at that list and say, you're not an idolater, that you put something before your, your gaze, your worship of God that is not him. You may look at some of those other ones and say, that's not me, but that one should pick on every single one of us. And we should come to the same conclusion that Paul comes later on in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, where he says, but for the grace of God. That's what you should be feeling when you see lists like that. But for the grace of God, that would be me. But for the grace of God, I too wouldn't experience right relationship with him. 
that we need God's grace through Jesus Christ. You know, Paul's goal here in, in these first couple chapters, especially as he's trying to help us see the blackness of our sin, and before, as he's sharing the beauty of the gospel, is he's trying to expand in ever-increasing circles till there's no one left who says, I'm not in that circle. He doesn't want us to continue to miss it. And that was especially difficult for the Jewish people. In the Jewish people's mind, they were being taught something again and again that was pushing back against that. In fact, here's something from one of their scriptures, the Wisdom of Solomon, which occurred between the Old Testament time and the New Testament time when Jesus came. And here's what, what it says. It says, be thou our God. So because you, God, are king and true, patient, and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power. The statement there is that they didn't need to worry. Because they were Jewish people, because God had revealed himself to them through the law, because he'd given them his presence in the wandering in the desert, because they were chosen, even if they sinned, nothing they could do could separate them from God simply because they had been given these things. They didn't need to care anymore. That they had their relationship by birth and heritage, not by personal relationship with God. That was the pushback that many of the Jewish people were having and that Paul was feeling and Paul says in Romans 2, 4 through 5 that, that this tries the patience of God and that it ultimately reveals a heart that is destined for wrath, not for salvation. And that's what he begins to unpack as he goes on in Romans 2, 6 through 7. It's a very ordered section that looks like this. It says, God will judge everyone equitably. Those who do good will attain eternal life. Those who do evil will suffer wrath. Wrath for those who do evil. Glory to those who do good. God will judge impartially. I mean, he uses a format like this, a chiasm, to help bring out the repetition, but also to point out to us the important thing, in this case, what's on the outside edges, which is God will judge impartially. Everyone will be judged by God. Those who are good to eternal life, those who don't do good to wrath. And we can begin to see here Paul's concern for this Jewish thought that's contrary to the gospel that seems to be seeping into the, the people in Rome even now, you might pause for a second and be concerned when you, when you see this list and when you look at verses 6 through 11, because he even starts in Romans 2, 6 and says this, he, God, will render to each one according to his works. And you might go like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Paul. Are you just undoing everything that you've been doing through Romans 1 up to this point? Are you telling me now that I need to go back and actually work? I need to try hard. That's what's going to happen. If I don't try hard, I'm not going to be judged properly. I would say, no, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul is, is trying to reveal and lay out the rules that if, if somehow you could follow general, general revelation, and if somehow you could follow the special revelation of the law and all the requirements of you, then you could be judged under those rules, and if you were good, you could be found okay. That is a big if. In fact, that's what you're meant to feel. Like It's not possible. That's what Scripture tells us again and again. That if, if you could just do that, is not possible for me and you. And we're going to see this again in Romans chapter 3. We're going to see it in Romans chapter 8 when Bren preaches. And this is what we see. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That requirement had to happen, but we couldn't do it. 
We needed Jesus to come and do it for us. In fact, Jesus says this about himself in Matthew 5. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It had to be done. The righteous for the unrighteous, that we might receive what Christ has done for us. It's not possible for us as sinners to do the law, though we're held accountable to it. Again, that's what we keep talking about when we talk about the righteousness of God, this idea that God had to act on our behalf to bring us back into relationship with himself. And I'm going to expand this definition a little bit as we keep talking about it, that the righteousness of God is the righteous act by which a righteous God brings people into right relationship with himself by making them righteous in Jesus Christ. And we don't want to forget that that last thing is what Paul is mostly focusing on in Romans, this reality for us that we have been made righteous in Jesus Christ. What we could not do, the the requirement that we could not meet up to, God has done for us in his righteousness by his righteous act that we might receive that righteousness through no doing of our own except through faith. Well, Paul continues on in Romans 2, 12 through 16 to say that living under the law even being under God's special revelation of who he is and what pleases him and displeases him is not necessarily better than living under just general revelation. I mean, hear that word though, not necessarily. Paul's gonna go on in Romans and explain all the wonderful things that can come from being under God's special revelation. We're gonna see that even here in this passage in a second. But having that special revelation, knowing different commands of God beyond general revelation in and of itself isn't what saves you. In fact, it just continues to condemn us. It continues to point out in our hearts, in our lives, all the many ways that we don't serve God. You know, you still have to do what is right, whether you have special revelation or general revelation. And as we've seen, Scripture reminds us again and again that we have failed and will continue to fail the law and every other special revelation that we are given outside of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul's not saying here that the, the Gentiles were lawless. They did have rules. They had laws. In fact, one of the things he's saying in this section is that when the Gentiles give same statement to the necessity of parts of the law, they themselves will now be judged under it. I mean, for example, general, we talked about general revelation uh, in Romans 1 and how, how it can call us to do certain things with our body and not do certain things with our body. But general revelation doesn't teach us anything about adultery, doesn't teach us anything about divorce. I mean, if we're to look at animals, most animals are not monogamous. They happily bounce between partners. In fact, they have multiple partners on to sometimes. They continue to move on. Yet special revelation tells us that. Yet when we look at history and we look at cultures, we see that many, many cultures, in fact, most cultures have been monogamous. Most cultures have difficulties with partners moving around between other people. And that's the kind of instance that Paul is talking about. He's talking about these places where even those who don't have special revelation will see and realize that that's a problem. And by realizing that and then trying to live it out and continuing to fail, they themselves are even now being judged by the law, not just general revelation. Paul is telling us that being under the law brings condemnation and failure, just like being outside of the law. And under general revelation brings condemnation through nature and our consciousness when we fail as well. It's one big, all-encompassing thing. You don't stand apart differently just because you're a Jewish, just like we don't stand apart differently because we call ourselves Christian. There's something else that has to happen. You know, Paul's been setting up his argument in the first half of chapter 2 here. You know, verses 1 through 16 are his argument that all will be judged fairly before God, and by that metric, 
even people under the law, under God's special revelation, will be found wanting. They will not succeed. They will not be able to do it. And in case someone missed the point in chapter one, Paul's wanting to remind them that you're not the exception just because you're a Jew. You're not an exception just because you're a Christian, because you call yourself something or a part of a particular group. Paul wants to show them that their assumed superiority is not real. You know, remember, all of this is the black backdrop that Paul is is pointing us to of our sin and our inability to measure up to a good and right and righteous God. It's what makes the good news of the gospel so amazing and so beautiful is because we see how bad the situation is. And in the second half here of Romans 2, Paul is moving away from his argument to an application. There are two specific ways that he seems to be seeing Romans 2, 3 working itself out. When he says this, when he says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? When he's thinking about the Jews, when he's thinking about these Christians he's writing to in Rome, he's thinking, it seems, two different ways that that this plays out predominantly in their life. And I'm so thankful that Paul picked these two major ways because I think it's so applicable to me, to you, how we live. Look how Paul starts this first section. He starts by saying, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. It's a a very hypothetical if. He knows if he went and introduced himself to someone who was Jewish and said, are you Jew? They would say yes. Their identity was very important to them. But he also knew that when he talked to them that they would rely on the law. That statement, rely on the law, was not a positive thing. In fact, when it's used in Scripture, it's used negatively usually. It's this idea to lean on, to presume upon. Uh, The prophet Micah says it this way in Micah 3.11. The prophet says, It's Israel's heads, their leaders, give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. It's this idea of presuming upon their identity of the, as the Jewish people that, that even if they sinned, God was not going to leave them. It's not their problem. He promised to always be there. You know, it's this idea that, that the, the Jewish people that Paul is talking about, even Christians, can want to grab a hold of the good things that special revelation brings us without acknowledging what it also does to condemn us. We want to grab onto things like this that Paul says here. He says that you can boast in God. This idea that we can say, man, I know how amazing God is, what he does, how good he is. Or that we can say that we know his will and approve what is excellent because we were instructed in the law or other special revelation. Or that we could be a guide to the blind, a light in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of the children because we have a body of knowledgement and truth. You know, all of those things are good things that come from God's special revelation, from knowing the law, from knowing scripture. But it can also be said of us that we need a right relationship with God. That those things in and of themselves are not what save us. Knowing that is not necessarily what saves us. You know, Paul wants to point out the hypocrisy of us all when he points to this section in Romans 2.21. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing... Do you steal? You you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
Paul is specifically calling out the Jewish people that they want to hold on to the good that they saw coming out of the law, being a part of God's plan, yet they didn't want to say that that same law condemned them and that they needed a solution from God. Just like you and I can read our Bibles, find amazing truths about our God, yet we should also acknowledge that it shows our great need our great hole and hurt that we need filled by God that only he can solve for us. I've been wondering as I've been thinking about this section about the Jewish people, what would have been different in their history had when the nations looked at them, they had acknowledged, yes, we're failing. And we wish and pray that God will do something to solve this, that he would bring his promised savior rather than ignoring it or not denying it. You know, I think you and I, we do something very similar to the Jews that Paul's addressing here. I think he's thinking about new Christians, how, how we can presume upon our knowledge of God, the fact that we just even have the Bible as the thing that is good and different about us, that makes us special without actually caring about our, our relationship with God. Right, This knowledge becomes for us like this canteen that we just carry around with us, thinking that it's a good thing, yet never paying attention to it, only to find out when we really need to engage with it, it's empty because we have not been filling it up at the relational springs of our God as we come to him face to face through prayer, through his Holy Spirit, to know him. Uh, not saying that, that that knowledge and relationship shouldn't go together, they should. Uh, the more that we know God should push us to pray and know him more. And knowing him more should want to drive us to, to uh, praying to him and seeing him should want us to know more about him in this glorious, never-ending cycle until one day we're drawn face-to-face with him in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, Paul Paul talks about this hypocrisy, this struggle. And when we get to Romans 7, we're going to see when he says things like this. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. It'll be through Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. That's my only hope. That's your only hope. That was Paul's only hope. Scripture, God's special revelation condemns us and shows us that we are constantly failing and that we need this hope of Jesus. That's why we can say, whether it's for the first time or the 10,000th time, we all need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is for salvation and for our constant growth and relationship with God to come to him through Jesus Christ. It's one of the things I like least about being a pastor. (laughs) I come up here and I can preach and share with you the beauty of the knowledge of God. And yet in my own heart, I can step down and sometimes immediately not do what he would want from me. Or I too can go weeks and not think and relate to God in ways that I would like. It feels so condemning, so broken. You know, there's a a much deeper discussion here, a topic that I pray that we can come back to at some point, which is the idea that in scripture, knowing is always a relational idea. It's never just a head thing. That whenever it talks about us knowing God or God knowing us, it's not data points, but it's being in a relationship. We can see that when we see what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says this. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Preach in your name. And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We want to know God in that sense. 
Uh, we want to know him where we are walking in relationship with him, where we, we don't want to stop and lean on knowledge today. Like Paul is warning the, the, the Jewish people that they are leaning on, on this thing that they have the law. They know what good and wrong is without actually walking in relationship with God daily, not seeing it push us back into his grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. You know, it's funny how the temptation seems to be throughout Romans to, be, to continually say, well, that might be those people's problem. <laughs> it's like Paul is playing this like never-ending game of whack-a-mole, trying to deal with different people and their different emotions as they hear one thing and go, well, you know what? I'm not really a thinker. I don't know that I'm that person who has all the stuff memorized in scripture. And so it's not really like it's my problem to walk around thinking that I'm going to lean on that. Usually what people mean by that is they feel like they're more a relational person. Well, that's what makes me really happy that Paul goes where he goes next, right? Paul, Paul goes on and talks about this idea of circumcision. Now, now don't get stuck in the literal idea of circumcision. Rather, this is a, an imagery, a picture of those who are a part of a group, that's what circumcision was for. It was meant to identify who the Israelites were because it was so distinct and different from all the people groups around them. And even here, Paul does the same thing. He says circumcision could be of some benefit if you're going to follow all the law. But again, that's that big if. If you could do it, you should do all these things. But the reality is you can't. And even more so, as we continue to watch what Paul says in this section about circumcision, we can see that he's talking about this idea of belonging being a part of a people group, relationally connected, that they were leaning on in a way that wasn't healthy. Now, this is where we can see Paul is not talking about circumcision in the physical sense, but about identification belonging. Look what he says in Romans 2, 28 through 29. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inward, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Our belonging is not something we do outwardly. It's not something that we can just come in and say, I am a part of what God is doing. God has to have done something in us. It's something that God can recognize that even it says he praises, and it's not something that man can ever fully see in someone else. You know, Paul's making sure that his Jewish audience, that even believers like me and you, that we don't rely on simply having the law, having special revelation, but he's also pointing to us that we can't also just say we're a part of the right crew. For us, we can't just say, I went to church on Sunday morning. I call myself a Christian. That is what has saved me. Could that be true of you as well? I mean, I imagine there are some of us here this morning that will think because we came to church today, we're good, everything's fine, and we're going to go about the rest of our week till next Sunday not thinking one single thought about God. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Is that something that you're doing? I know it's something I have done. I know it's still a struggle for me to come to relationship with God constantly, to want to press in through the grace I have in Jesus Christ to approach him now because he's given me that status of righteous in Jesus Christ, to know him truly and walk with him, not just presume upon my belonging because I came here, my belonging because of who my friends say they are. This is, this is a hard section as Paul continues to look at that darkness that is our sin, as he continues to push on us to say, no, 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 not just them, but you, you and me. We are condemned by natural revelation. We are condemned 
by special revelation, all over the place, the more we learn about God, the more we see how far away we are from a righteous God. And that is what Paul is so excited about. Because if he is willing to take us to these depths, he's also excited because he knows that this is exactly what the gospel speaks to. There is no sin that puts you too far away from God because there was no way you could ever not have sinned and not have walked it out perfectly. You needed God to do that for you in Jesus Christ. We all needed that. And we continue to testify to that daily by the ways that we live, the struggles that we have. We need God to move in our lives and to change us so that we can then walk in relationship with him. It's amazing how often I, how often I think we take good things of God, his general revelation in this world, his special revelation through his scripture, and we ignore it, or we make those things the things that we think are saving us, not God himself, not God through Jesus Christ on the cross, his death for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might be in relationship with him. That's what we're supposed to be seeing here through Romans 1 and 2, and as we go into 3. That's what I want us to see this morning as we take communion. This morning as you hold communion, I want us to hold it and remember to ourselves, this is all I have. This is it. All I have is the beauty of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. His body broken for me, his blood shed for me, that I might have right relationship with God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful that that is true. Lord God, it is so hard to look again and again at our sins, yet you looked on it and you said, I will solve that problem. I will deal with that at the cross. My righteousness for your unrighteousness, my death for your life. Lord God, thank you that that has always been your plan. Thank you that that's what you've done for us, that that's what you did for the Jewish people. That's what you did for every people group on this entire planet, God. That is why we love missions, that all people might know that that is true. That though their sin is dark and deep and all fall under condemnation, through Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous by faith. Lord God, thank you for that. Would you help us to hold on to that truth alone as the beauty of what you have done for us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.